Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Alice Su. The Economist Senior China Correspondent. I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, our Beijing bureau chief. It's been a year since Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin announced their no-limits friendship at the Beijing Winter Olympics, just on the eve of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. A year later, the world has been surprised by the strength of Ukraine's resistance and some dramatic setbacks for Russia's armed forces. With China sending signals that it wants to boost trade with Western countries, some in the West think they see signs of Xi regretting his support for Putin. Over the next two episodes of Drumtar, we're going to ask what really drives the China-Russia relationship and who benefits more from it? And are there limits to that no-limits friendship? To work this out, we'll be talking to experts on Sino-Russian relations in Beijing and beyond, as well as our own Russia expert here at The Economist. And we'll look back into history and delve into the rockier moments of the Sino-Soviet relationship. And if I can make it to the China-Russia border without getting frostbite, I'll be asking Chinese about their view of Russia and how it's changed. In today's episode, we're going back to that moment in Beijing on February 4th, 2022, when Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin cemented their no-limits friendship. We'll be asking, how has that friendship evolved over this past year? This is Drumtar from The Economist. David, how are you? How is your Spring Festival week? Well, I was working, uh, but I was some uh, very kind Chinese and uh, foreign friends invited me. Although I have to say, because I'm a vegetarian and I'm doing dry January, so no drinking, I am probably the oh. dullest. I am the <laughs> dullest dinner guest in Beijing. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, how's, your, how's your Spring Festival? It was great. Thank you. I mean, I I also worked through it, but found some time to have meals with family and friends. So I'm thankful for that. How many dumplings have you eaten? Actually, I've lost track. I had a dumpling making night with a few friends here and I feel like we made hundreds. (laughs) We couldn't finish them and then I continued eating them for three or four days afterwards. (laughs) That sounds like a proper new year. That's right. So we've just celebrated the Lunar New Year, but we're also approaching a very different anniversary. And it is the one-year anniversary of when Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin declared their no-limits friendship. And shortly after that, Putin invaded Ukraine. That's right, Alice. And we're going to look at this year in detail because it's been a year of contrasts. On the battlefield in Ukraine, you had twists and turns, unexpected Russian defeats. And if you look at commentary on China from leading politicians in the West, there have been twists and turns too. Constant expressions of hope that maybe China was distancing itself from Russia, that maybe China could be a mediator. But the honest truth is that sitting here in Beijing, at least, China has looked really, really constant. It is coldly, patiently pursuing a policy of following its own national interests. And it talks about being neutral, but it wasn't. It was pro-Russian pseudo-neutrality. So let's start by going all the way back to one year ago, February 2022, 
the Beijing Winter Olympics. These Olympics were being boycotted by many Western countries, including America, Britain, and Canada. Activists were calling these the Genocide Olympics and protesting that China was even allowed to hold them because of the atrocities the Chinese government was committing against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and in Tibet and because of its crackdown on Hong Kong and threats to Taiwan. So as a result, it was a very bizarre scene. David, you were there. Tell me what it was like. It was extraordinary being in the stadium. You had uh, far away across the other side in the VIP seats, you had Vladimir Putin as the star foreign leader sitting close to Xi Jinping. Uh, at one point, there were images that people called on camera of him either asleep or pretending to be asleep. Reportedly, it was the Ukrainian team was walking in. And that whole question of teams walking in to the stadium was such a marker of where China's public sympathies lay, because Obviously, the Chinese team was huge roars, big cheers for Hong Kong, big cheers for Taiwan, because the audience thought of them as Chinese too. And only two friends of China got a big cheer. One is Pakistan, but the other was Russia. And I went to a women's ice hockey game between the American team and the Russian team. And the Chinese crowd was a very sparse crowd because it was COVID and they had a handful of people bust in. They were cheering every time Russia even got the puck, uh, although they actually the American women thrashed them. So while global audiences were still digesting those images of Xi and Putin in a nearly empty Olympic stadium, diplomats were alarmed at something much more important that happened just before the opening ceremony, which was that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin issued a joint statement elevating China-Russia relations to a new level for a new era. And what everyone remembers from that statement is that they said the friendship between these two states has no limits. There are no forbidden areas of cooperation. And that made people think, is this the beginning of a new actual alliance? And the idea of an alliance, meaning if one party is attacked, the other must come to your aid, something like NATO. China has always been really clear that it's a country that doesn't want alliances with anyone. It has friendship with other countries, but never alliances because China doesn't want to be committed to having to come to someone's aid if they do something rash. And the idea with Russia was that Russia often did really rash things. And yet the language in this statement, not only as you say, Alice, were they talking about no limits to the friendship, but there was also really direct challenges to our version of democracy is just as valid as yours, a shared worldview of hostility to the West. And diplomats and politicians were immediately asking, with Vladimir Putin's tanks massed on the border of Ukraine, is this China signing up to a kind of autocratic might-makes-right view of the world. And those questions got put to the test shockingly soon after that pact, because on February 24th, those tanks rolled across the border and Putin invaded Ukraine. And this was war breaking out on the soil of Europe. There were refugees starting to pour into European capitals. And eyes were turning to China, this rising giant that had expressed its friendship with Vladimir Putin. Were they going to speak out? Were they going to try and call him to stop? But at that time, we were listening to what China was saying, and they wouldn't even call it an invasion. The Chinese government was referring to this as a Ukraine crisis. And in Beijing, at these daily press conferences held for foreign journalists, a reporter confronted the foreign ministry spokesperson and asked, you know, can you say that China considers this an invasion? And is it a violation of the UN Charter? Hua Chunying, who is one of the spokespeople for the foreign ministry, simply responded with a lot of non-committal fluff. You know, she said China is closely following the situation. We call on all parties to exercise restraint and prevent the situation from getting out of control. 
。我们希望呢，各方仍然不要把和平大门给关上，还是要继续的致力于对话和协商谈判，能够努力的尽快的缓解事态，不要使局势进一步的升级。She also said this issue has a complex historical background, and again, we call on all parties to exercise restraint. So Chinese neutrality, from the word go, was a pro-Russian pseudo neutrality, and from China's point of view, the core message that it was even delivering from the foreign ministry podium the day before the invasion was that this was NATO's fault for expanding up to Russia's doorstep. Some countries should think about whether they violated 将北约东扩到俄罗斯的家门口，并且部署大量先进的进攻性战略武器的时候，他们有没有想过把一个大国逼到绝地的后果 ？And you had Hua Chunying saying, "Did the U.S. ever think about the consequences of pushing a big country to the wall, blaming America for this war?" And while Hua Chunying is making those pro-Russian talking points, I can tell you that on the ground in Beijing. Every embassy was scrambling to find out: Did Vladimir Putin give Xi Jinping a heads up that he was about to invade Ukraine? Perhaps when they met at the Olympics. And one really interesting detail is: I was told by senior diplomats here in Beijing that for the first week or so, China didn't actually have its talking points already. It seemed genuinely shocked that this had been a full-on invasion. And another piece of evidence that perhaps whatever Putin did tell Xi, it wasn't that he was going to completely invade Ukraine. Is that the Chinese embassy in Ukraine was scrambling to put together an evacuation plan for its own citizens? But after about a week, ten days, the Chinese line settled down into this high-minded talk about being a peace-loving giant that wanted both sides to talk, whilst constantly using this diplomatic code that was all Russia's accusations that this was. NATO and America's fault. Yeah, and David, if you remember, it was later reported that American officials had shared intelligence with China about Russia's buildup. But instead of responding to it, China then told Russia about it and said, allegedly, "Look, America is trying to sow division between us." And that just goes to show that, from the Chinese perspective, everything is viewed through a lens of distrust—distrust distrust of America, distrust of NATO. That was clear to us, you know. But I can also understand why people would have been confused by what role China was going to play, because in March, also China sent a small amount of humanitarian support to Ukraine, and China also wasn't sending arms to Russia. So soon, there were Western observers questioning, "Oh, is there hope after all? Is China not going to support Russia on this war? Could China even be a mediator?" That's right, and I think perhaps the most sort of shameful moment of naivety was from Josep Borrell, the European Union's foreign policy chief. Right at the beginning of March, he said to a Spanish newspaper that if anyone could mediate a peace deal, it must be China because it can't be the U.S. and it can't be Europe. And that's just like someone playing geopolitical chess and thinking, "Oh, well, the piece that needs to logically be here is China," without actually thinking about what China's worldview or core interests are. Yeah, and to understand China's interests, you have to think about things from the Chinese Communist Party's point of view. That's right, and I think the core mistake that outsiders make is to look at China through their own eyes. So they imagine that because in America or Europe, lots of people think Vladimir Putin was being a butcher and a thug, so surely Xi Jinping must be embarrassed or ashamed to have called Putin his friend. But here's the thing, Alice: you and I know that Chinese foreign policy is not driven by embarrassment. To be honest, it's not driven by any real concern about the suffering or the death of foreigners. It is cold, hard calculations about China's long-standing interests. It cares about 
the United States potentially stopping China from doing what it wants in Asia. Above all, maybe one day trying to take the island of Taiwan where you are. And it worries that America might have its allies create some kind of alliance like NATO in Asia. So for China, it looked at the war in Ukraine and this was about, we need to delegitimize and demonize NATO as an American-led defense alliance. And we need to demonize and delegitimize the sanctions being imposed on Russia because one day we might face the same. And that delegitimization started at home with domestic propaganda, which you were watching every night. That's right. Just as Western public opinion was being absolutely shocked by things like the massacre of civilians in Butcher just outside Kiev or other kind of real war crimes, the Chinese public was not being told a word of that. And if you watch, for example, the main evening news, a huge number of Chinese get their news from the Xinwen Lianbo. What's unbelievably consistent is that for many months, including this week, they basically broadcast the exact same news report every single night. It basically begins, the Russian defense ministry says it's attacked this place. The Ukrainians say they've attacked that place. And then they go to an international personage. So this might be like a friend of China, the Nicaraguan foreign minister, or a kind of communist professor at an Italian university, who always says the same thing, that America and NATO are prolonging this war to make profits for arms dealers and energy companies at Europe's expense. And that nightly talk of Europeans paying the price for America wickedness, which is backed on the evening news by images of miserable Europeans queuing up for expensive fuel at gas or petrol stations. That's not an accident, because in addition to presenting things like NATO, the very existence of American defense alliances as an aggressive, destabilizing act, China has one last core interest that it is exploring in Ukraine. The Chinese propaganda machine is determined to use this conflict to drive a wedge between Europe and Americans. Why? Because China gains if the West is divided. I just remember how in some ways disturbing it was that when the war started, if you went on Chinese social media, you would see tons of trending hashtags and posts expressing support for the war and these bizarre worshipful videos of Vladimir Putin. There were these videos where people were praising him as tough guy. Basically, they were praising him because he was standing up to the West and he was standing up to NATO. And there were also some very strange videos where people were just saying, like, Vladimir is so attractive, he's so handsome, the way he walks is amazing. It just seemed like nationalists in China were drawn to this idea of someone who would stick it to the West and invade in a neighboring country. And something I think is really interesting is that the speech that Putin gave on February 24th, where he justified war as a preemptive strike against Western aggression, that speech was translated and it actually went viral. There were 1.1 billion views on Weibo in 24 hours and commenters were saying, this is such a moving speech. This is exactly how the West treats China. And, and you could just see that there was this resonance there. 
Now, at the same time, there were also a lot of people who were disturbed, of course, and worried about war. And I think one of the most striking voices was this Chinese man, a Beijinger. Actually, his name is Wang Jixian, and he lives in Odessa, and he was posting videos on Chinese social media saying, I'm here, and this is what's happening. We're being bombed, and he provided an alternative view to what was going on. He tries to get Chinese people to just think about the ordinary Lao Bai Sing, the people who just want to live and just want to defend their families. He quickly became very popular, but then he also very quickly got censored, he got threatened, he got trolled. And of course, that torrent of nationalist excitement happily skated over the fact that China has also told its own population that if China stands for anything internationally, it's about the respect for national sovereignty of other countries and territorial integrity. Because there's that whole idea, you remember, Alice, you know, every Chinese school child is told that the worst thing you can do is take off chunks of another country's territory, because that's what evil foreign powers did to China when it was too weak to defend itself. And so the invasion of Ukraine and the hacking off of chunks of Ukrainian territory should be the worst taboo. All this was going on throughout last year in the Chinese media, the state media, and social media. And yet, in the West, there were still people who held on to hope that maybe China would change and they would change their stance, especially when it became apparent that Russia wasn't doing so well in the war and it was going to drag out. And maybe Russia would even look like a loser. And could that then move Xi Jinping to decide he doesn't want to stand with Russia after all? And Alice, as we work through our chronology of last year and we chart that roller coaster of Western hopes being raised and dashed, it was amazing to watch how much weight people put on stuff that was really standard Chinese talking points. So Xi Jinping made one of his very first trips overseas during the zero COVID era. He went to a Chinese-sponsored security organization meeting in the next door country of Uzbekistan. And because there was footage of Vladimir Putin saying that he was going to explain how the war was going because he understood that there were concerns on the Chinese side. You saw people going, oh, China's clearly rebuked Russia and Putin is in real trouble. Look how cross she looks, for which there was uh, basically no evidence. Then in July, you had China's ambassador to the United States, who's now their new foreign minister, Qing Gang, who's a very smooth, sophisticated operator, saying, let me tell you, don't misunderstand that joint statement signed on February the 4th. Let me tell you this. China-Russia relationship is not an alliance, it's not for confrontation, it's not targeting any third party. Please, I suggest that you read the joint statement carefully from beginning to end without taking any words out of context. You saw this whole new wave of commentary. Oh, he's saying they don't want to be too close to Russia, except, as you and I know, and we've discussed already, China's been saying for years that it doesn't want alliances with anyone. And there's like a cottage industry in op-eds and think tank articles about how Xi Jinping is actually reducing his support for the Russian war, or somehow if we gave China and Russia what they want in terms of concessions on Taiwan or human rights, or gave Russia promises that we would never enlarge NATO again, that somehow we could drive a wedge between China and Russia because they don't really like each other and we can play like Kissinger 2.0. Frankly, it's magical thinking. So there seems to be this like this infinite capacity for projecting our values and our assumptions onto China. 
That's right. To a large extent, you know, a lot of this is wishful thinking. Although I would note that on some points, there has been progress, notably on Putin's threats of using nuclear weapons. We've heard that after Xi Jinping met Biden in Bali and then he received German Chancellor Olaf Scholz in Beijing, American and German officials got clear signals from China that not only nuclear war, but also nuclear threats were a red line. And yet, Alice, as we finish our chronology of this year of really consistent Chinese pursuit of its interests back in Beijing while the rest of the world was working out what was going on. Final proof of this was a video summit between President Xi and Putin on December the 30th. And the official Chinese readout had President Xi Jinping saying that China stands ready to join hands with Russia and all other progressive forces around the world who oppose hegemony. And so Russia, which is indiscriminately attacking apartment buildings with cruise missiles and torturing prisoners of war is apparently, in the eyes of Xi Jinping, a progressive force. And Vladimir Putin said that, dear Mr. Chairman, dear friend, we're expecting you next spring on a state visit to Moscow. If that state visit by Xi Jinping to Russia takes place, then I think you're going to see an extraordinary test of whether China is simply unembarrassable when it comes to its friendship with Russia. You know, Alice, the story of this year is just such an important reminder that we always have to try and understand Chinese policy by looking through the eyes of the Communist Party. Even if we don't agree with how they see the world, that's what explains how they act. And that's what we try and do every week in the China coverage in The Economist. That's right. And we have loads of interesting coverage every week. This week, I've been reporting on cross-strait tensions. Our colleague Don Weinland has been writing about signs of China's property sector recovering. And there is much more. But if you want to read it, you will have to subscribe. Luckily, we have a special introductory offer for our listeners. You'll find it at economist.com slash drum offer. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to Drum Tower. This week, in the first part of our two-part series looking at China's relationship with Russia, we're asking how the no-limits friendship between Putin and Xi has evolved over the past year. One way to get deeper into China's worldview is to talk to Chinese scholars and experts. And David, you recently did that in Beijing. That's right. I took a cab across Beijing to the University District Haidian to a slightly noisy restaurant just around the corner from Renmin University, one of the best in Beijing, to talk to one of their professors. So Wang Yiwei is a rare thing in Chinese academia. He's an expert on European Union politics and security policy. And he doesn't speak for the Chinese government, but he is a member of the foreign policy establishment. And so it's important when someone like him explains that it's harder for China now to use Russian language about how this isn't a war, it's just a special military operation. Uh, it's harder for China to stomach Russian claims that this is just about demilitarizing a dangerous Nazi power like Ukraine. And what has changed it for China is once Vladimir Putin held those fake referendums in Ukraine and said that occupied bits of Ukraine were voting to join Russia and then declared them to be part of Russia, I mean, by any judgment, that's annexing someone else's territory. And that, since the communist regime began in 1949, they have said that the worst crime you can commit 
is to be an imperialist and to have a land grab and take someone else's territory. So you hear Wang Yiwei saying that it's hard to use that Russian language about special military operations or demilitarization anymore because they annexed land. But definitely it's not a special military operation anymore because the first special military operation is demilitarized. But not after the four states of Ukraine was annexed to Russia, this changed it. Totally changed Chinese views of this uh, conflict. It's not about uh, special military operation anymore. It's about uh, land. It's about uh, expansion. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think listeners might think, did Chinese people and the Chinese government really believe that this was only a special military operation in the first place? And I think to understand that perspective, you have to understand that there is a deep distrust of NATO in China. And that goes back to 1999 when NATO bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. China says it is outraged after four people die and 20 are injured when NATO bombs hit the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. The attack on the embassy provokes angry demonstrations by thousands in China's biggest cities. And political and professional associations across China slam the Belgrade attack, calling on NATO to accept full responsibility. That was an incident that Western officials claimed was an accident in the war. They said we had the wrong maps. We didn't mean to accidentally bomb this diplomatic building. But it sparked a huge wave of anger in China. So, Alice, I was actually in Beijing in 1999 during the embassy riots. And it was an extraordinary thing because, you know, you know how tightly policed the embassy district is in Beijing. You watched them turning the tap on. They allowed a controlled number of students from elite universities in on buses to throw stones through the windows of the American embassy, the British embassy, to hurl paint at them. And then the tap was kind of kept so that they never lost control. I remember seeing the Chinese armed police beating back students late at night outside the American embassy who were trying to get a burning rag on a long bamboo pole to set fire to the American flag on the embassy flagpole. And that was seen by the Chinese police clearly as a step too far. So they, they punched the students back. The students were yelling traitors. But you could see that the Chinese government knew that there was this anger that they wanted to stoke but control at the same time. Now, that's a long time ago. But what needs to worry us now and what we have to remember in the context of Ukraine is that I didn't meet a single person in Beijing in 1999 who believed America's explanation that it was a mistake based on a faulty map. They all thought that it was a deliberate attack on China by NATO. And to this day, I've never met anyone Chinese that thinks differently. And so when we talk about NATO helping Ukraine in 2023, we have to remember that for almost everyone in China, NATO is soaked in Chinese blood. That's how they see it. Yeah, in fact, Hua Chunying, the foreign ministry spokeswoman, had a line in a press conference on February 24th, where she said NATO still owes the Chinese people a debt of blood. And that also went viral. That's what people in China were thinking about when they saw Russia invading Ukraine. And so what you can hear when you talk to someone like Wang Yiwei is that he's willing to say that Russia has shocked China by annexing land, but he is not willing for one second to concede that the Western account of what is happening in terms of war crimes or that terrible massacre in Butcher is a reason to condemn Russia. Because for someone like Wang Yiwei, maybe for him, he says it's fake news. Maybe there was no Butcher massacre. Maybe it was just cooked up by the Ukrainians to try and gain more support from the rest of the world. China's more suspicious about the 
story. Maybe it's a fake news. Maybe it's propaganda of the West. They want to utilize. So, so China's understanding of psychology. China's, so just to be clear, you're saying that from the Chinese side's perspective, maybe the Western reporting about the massacre in Bucha is fake news. It's, it's propaganda. Maybe it's Ukraine want to make this news and then to bite the sympathy and they need the Western support. So we are more suspicious about that. If this happened, of course we should condemn. And then Chinese understand that this may be a proxy war. Mm -hmm. So what the, you say, CCTV news, everything, talk about that. It's, if you yeah, respect the sovereignty, yes. But uh, Ukraine is a sovereign state, people were questioning about. Okay, wait. He just said something about how some people will have questions about whether Ukraine is a sovereign state or not. What is that about? So as China struggles to square the circle of how it's opposed to invasions and yet is not condemning Russia's invasion. One way out of that is to say this isn't actually a war between Russia and Ukraine at all. This is a proxy war. You remember he uses that phrase proxy war. This is America and NATO trying to bully Russia in the way that it bullies so many other countries. And that Ukraine isn't kind of really even a sovereign country at all. Now, Wang Yiwei is too sophisticated to say that. But there are other Chinese nationalists who say things like, Ukraine is so corrupt, it's not even a country at all. It's just a bunch of oligarchs, which is, again, a Russian talking point. Remember, Vladimir Putin says that Ukraine is not a real country. And so you see how using the Russian talking points gets China out of the logical trap of justifying the thing that it says it can never justify, which is one country invading another. Did Professor Wang address the question of whether China is getting any benefit out of this war? He absolutely did. So I was asking him, is China going to try and make Russia more dependent on China in terms of foreign policy? Does it want things like better access to Central Asia without Russia saying, hey, that's our backyard? Is there some sort of geopolitical win for China? And it's fascinating. So one of his points is just a standard Chinese talking about, you know, China could never take advantage of something as horrible as a war. That's how Chinese officials talk. But he actually also said this really interesting thing about how actually it's not clear that Russia really wants to be that close to China because Russia hasn't maybe given up on being part of the West. That actually, from China's point of view, Russia isn't even a particularly appealing best friend because the Russian economy is now so small. Actually, he ends up saying this thing that you hear a lot from scholars here in Beijing, which is that it's not just that China isn't trying to have an alliance with Russia, but maybe the two sides wouldn't even want one because there's a lot of distrust there. First, China do not want to take advantage of any conflict or war. We are not our traditional thinking. It's not that way. We felt sympathy. We condemn any conflict, any war, and civilian lose and territory was uh, taken by others because China suffered a lot from history. And uh, second, uh, we understand Russia. Russia they want to integrate with the with Europe. They are not thinking about their Asian uh, culture, even territory largely in Asia. So Russia, I don't think they can. To seek that China have no, as I said, they never talk about China's this military uh, operation. They can manage this. We understand the culture. Russia is very arrogant. They don't think uh, even the GDP maybe one tenth of China, something like that. I don't think they need China help. So far, they have the hope to win, but Chinese understand they cannot win. Actually, isn't that interesting to hear him say that the Chinese understand that the Russians cannot win? Actually, that is not the government position. But to hear a scholar in Beijing saying that, I think, shows you the kind of the the caution, at least that you are hearing. 
Yeah, and it's just striking to hear about this distance between Russia and China and his statement that, you know, Russia is very arrogant. Their GDP is so much smaller than ours, but they don't want to be close to us. They're looking at Europe because from the Western perspective, you know, there's all this alarm about Russia and China getting closer and closer. But when you really get into it, there's a lot of distance. And that word culture that he uses is something that comes up a lot. It's really striking to me that in my reporting over the last year, when I've spoken to kind of leading Chinese scholars of Russia, people who speak fluent Russian, have spent a long time in Russia, they've made their whole careers about it, you get them onto the subject of, you know, Russia's future, its prospects, and fairly quickly they start talking about how lazy Russians are, how they're so spoilt because they have all these natural resources and minerals and oil, and yet they don't do much with it, and how actually Russians are kind of racist and don't want to be Asians. They actually want to be white Europeans and have holidays in Europe. And so there's tremendous distrust, but the geopolitical alignments are there. And you even hear Wang Yiwei pushing back on the idea that as a great power, China has a duty to be a responsible stakeholder and mediate in the war. He says that China is a victim from the US sanctions and the Western sanctions imposed on Russia, because things like China viewed Central Asia and Eurasia as the founding place where it was going to try the Belt and Road Initiative, that global infrastructure project. And so Ukraine was actually an important place. China was wanting to build things in Ukraine, like railways and metro systems. And so it's actually a victim of this war. But China is not a stakeholder. China is not involved directly about this. China suffered from this. You sanctioned to Russia. Also, China heard about a lot of our Belt and Road Initiative. Ukraine is very important over there. Yeah, so it's really interesting he's saying that China's being hurt by the repercussions to Russia's actions. And it's true that China had some pretty big investments in Ukraine. And I have heard Western diplomats here in Beijing saying with immense cynicism that they fully expect when this war ever ends that China will volunteer the next day to rebuild the shattered cities of Ukraine. That's right, David. And that all just goes to show that if you want to understand the Chinese perspective, the Communist Party perspective, when they're looking at uh, the invasion of Ukraine and they're looking at the war, for them, it's really about so much more than just the past year. It's about more than Russia, what Russia has done or what's happening to the Ukrainian people. Actually, at the core for them, it's all about themselves. It's all about the Communist Party and its survival and its grip on power in China. In a dangerous world. Absolutely. Alice, where is that Chinese guy in Odessa now? Is he still there vlogging? Uh, yeah, I, I actually just checked on him before we recorded this episode, and I found that he is still living in Ukraine. He's actually married to a Ukrainian. He can't go back to China because of all these videos that he made and because he insists on speaking out about the truth of what's going on. But in the latest video, he had a generator going, and he was celebrating Lunar New Year, and he sent a message to his fans saying, Happy New Year, and may the war end soon. So this week, we've tried to decode China's talking points on Russia's war with Ukraine. We tried to understand how the Communist Party views it. We've heard how commentators in the West have been asking if Xi Jinping regrets standing with Vladimir Putin a year ago at the Olympics. We see that he doesn't, at least not yet. And party bosses certainly don't accept that China should feel shame about its stance. Next week, we're going to look forwards. We're going to explore how China not only doesn't regret standing with Russia throughout this year of war, but also has a vision for how China could end up being a winner from this tragic conflict, perhaps the only winner. 
Thank you so much to everyone who has been listening and writing to us. We have had some great questions and suggestions from listeners. In fact, this topic was a suggestion from a listener. If you have something else that you want to tell us, please do email us at drum at economist.com. And thank you for listening to Drum Tower. Our editor is Poppy Sebag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell produced this episode. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim, and music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. <laughs>